okay or not troubled? We could slide into some practice here. <coughs> How's the temperature in the room? Warm. Warm. Maybe some cold. See, actually, right? Warm, cold. <laughs> Just right. You know, Goldilocks. Maybe move around. I don't know. Maybe we open up stuff in the front. Maybe it tends to be hotter up here. Okay. So, if we want to help ourselves feel safer and less triggered around, um, you know, uh, our safety needs not being met, uh, to me there's some basic resources that are kind of like a checklist. Maybe you're really solid on one and then we'll just keep going to another. So, for example, can you relax at will? One of the markers, interestingly, one of the most, uh, if you hypothetically uh, randomly selected 100 people and, and you wanted to see how many of them had a meditation practice. And so you said, okay, you're all going to meditate for 10 minutes. Probably the most reliable marker of years of meditative practice is how rapidly a person's heartbeat would slow, how quickly they would calm down which has to do with the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system, the so-called rest and digest wing, as opposed to the fight or flight sympathetic nervous system. Now there's a place for sympathetic nervous system activation, especially if accompanied by positive emotion. We're cheering on our kids' sports team, or we're really excited because some good thing happened to us uh, at work or in life in general just howling at the moon with a good time with friends. Great. You know, sometimes people think you have to shut the sympathetic nervous system down. But be careful. Because once that sympathetic nervous system is activated, it's very easy for it to tip over into negativity. Right? Okay. So, parasympathetic activation. There are a number of ways to relax. How about we explore a few right now? Okay? We'll just do this kind of quickly. One great one is if you can, take three to ten breaths in which the exhalation is about twice as long as the inhalation. I'll do an example here, and then you can do it on your own as you like for a couple minutes, well, a minute or so. So it would be inhaling, two, three, exhaling, two, three, four, Five, six, inhaling, two, three, exhaling. And I'll let you do this on your own. Three to ten breaths in which the exhalation is about twice as long as the inhalation, and then notice how you feel. Okay, come on back. 
Do you notice any change? It's quite dramatic often. And it's because as we inhale, the sympathetic wing of the nervous, nervous system gets involved. That's why the heart speeds up a little bit when we inhale. When we exhale, the parasympathetic nervous system gets involved. So deliberately uh, extending that period of parasympathetic activation is a very quick and easy way, including an unobtrusive way, in a tricky meeting or you know, dinner with the in-laws, right? They say in the monastery, think you're so enlightened, go home for the holidays, you know, that kind of thing. No one needs to know that you're extending that exhalation in that tricky situation. So that's a, n- a nice way to kind of calm things down and cool the fires. Uh, speaking of the metaphors of the Buddha, he very often used the language of cooling. We're trying to cool down, going to the green zone. All right? Another way to cool down right, is to cultivate tranquility as a practice. You may remember that of the seven factors of awakening in Buddhist psychology, one of them is tranquility. And I use the language that the Buddha used also of tranquilizing the body, tranquilizing the mind, uh, learning how to more readily access, activate a sense of tranquility, and also becoming more and more aware of those aspects of experience that feel already still. Like the field of awareness can feel already still. It represents things, but it itself is undisturbed. It's a little bit like a TV screen. What's on the screen is all kinds of stuff. But the screen itself is undisturbed by what it represents. See that way of thinking about it? Or you might have a sense, maybe the witnessing, we talked to, somebody brought up earlier, Uh, yeah, Um, that in us is something that's inherently undisturbable that witnesses things that are disturbing. So feeling into things that are tranquil and practicing and cultivating tranquility. That's a good thing. And then, of course, whatever else you like to do that's relaxing, you know, it's helpful. Uh, Yoga practice, uh, beauty, nature, petting the dog, uh, rubbing the cat. Uh, We have a cat. Uh, If you see my jacket, you'll recognize the cat hairs. Um, That, too, can help us relax. Okay? Two more, and then we'll take a break. Not harming. That's a huge deal around feeling safer. Because, interestingly, it helps us feel safer to really take on not harming others, including the natural world. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, so there are many ways to practice non-harming. You know, uh, it applies to oneself as to others. Uh, if you look at the Eightfold Path in Buddhism, a fair amount of it is about not harming, like precepts: uh, not killing, not stealing, not lying, not abusing oneself or others with sexuality or intoxicants. Right, uh, right speech, wise speech. Six main guidelines for wise speech in Buddhism. It's a good way to maintain your equanimity. Uh, practice wise speech, right speech. Uh, five are mandatory, one is desirable. All right. Well-intended, speech that is well-intended, um, accurate, beneficial, timely, and without harshness. That's often the hardest one. 
good tone, and ideally, but not necessarily, wanted. Right? <laughs> right there? Got those? That's a good call out. You know, well-intended, actually beneficial, truthful, accurate. Uh, doesn't mean you have to say everything, but what is said is accurate. Uh, timely. Uh, you're not kind of saying to someone on the way out the door, oh, by the way, or something or other, you know. Uh, oh, by the way, I, I, I want to break up. No, it's <laughs> not cool. And then especially around harsh tone. Okay, good. Yeah. So any questions about this slide? Comments about it? None doing. None doing? Should I talk about that? Yeah, what I mean is... Um, most of the precepts in Buddhism are expressed in the negative, and Thich Nhat Hanh has been great, among other people, at turning them into the positive. So what that means is, rather than not killing, encourage life. Protect it, support it, plant a tree or something, you know? Or rather than not stealing, be generous. Give to the world in ways large and small, immaterial and material. See, same way. Uh, that, that would be a way to think about it. Rather than uh, restraining harsh speech, harsh tone, uh, explore ways to bring an authentic lovingness and encouragement and recognition of the goodness in the other person into your tone. That's what that means. And it's interesting, again, to think of this as a path to equanimity. Right? The Buddha's take on moral conduct, which is a lot of what is up here, was not in moralistic terms. It wasn't about sins uh, to avoid committing, or it wasn't about a deity to avoid offending or betraying. It was about pragmatically being virtuous over here cultivates that embodied enactment of the third noble truth that resting in unconditional peace, contentment, and love. Skillful means. Or as they say at Google, don't be evil. Okay. Any questions, comments? <laughs> Great. Over there. A microphone maybe. Oh, good. Thanks. Thanks for getting up and doing this. Right there. That it should be wanted, if I'm understanding. Because to me, one of the basic premises in my life is if someone asks me, I'll do my best to answer. But if they don't ask me, my thoughts get to be my thoughts to myself. So am I interpreting what you're saying Anyway, okay. <laughs> okay, good. So, <clears throat> as context, any of this stuff, including these sort of, if you will, principles or admonitions, they're really just to be inspected to see what works for you, right? Um, so then, in that frame, if I get you right, the, the way it shows up for me is, let's say, we have young adult children. And... With both our kids, we see things that could help. Right? We also see 
that they don't want to hear it because they've heard it, whatever, you know. And to go to that question, what's it like for you to be with me? What's it like for that person over there to be in the presence of someone over here who thinks you're messing up? It's kind of burdensome and aggravating. And so now for us as parents, to use a concrete example, a lot we don't say a word. It's not wanted. And also as parents, though, we feel like we cross a certain line where there's certain things where our duty to our kids and our thought about the ways that that 23-year-old at 33 may say, why didn't you say something? You know, So it's a delicate art, and I don't think there's a clear formula for an answer. We will then say something. The, the way I figure it, I, I kind of pace it time-wise. I think I get four to six shots a year. I use them well. And I try to offer the point in a clean way and then, you know, not pound it home further. Right? So that's kind of what I mean. Uh, and um, flip it around to one of my communications to my mom when we had young children. My mom, very loving person, no longer alive, who expressed her love a lot by helping you improve. <laughs> You know how that landed on me, a fairly, very actually autonomous, self-reliance, liberation, and freedom kind of guy. Gee, why would I be drawn to Buddhism? But anyway, um, and I finally said to my mom, after our kids were, you know, two, three, four years old somewhere, and she was driving, my wife especially crazy, I learned how to manage it better. Uh, my wife grew up in a very healthy household. She's one of those few people who did, and so she wasn't prepared for the full Hansen neurosis, you know. Anyway. So I thought about this, and I said to my mom one time, Mom, we were in a good moment. Uh, you know, we had mostly a good relationship. Mom, unless I specifically ask for it, could you never offer a judgment or advice about how we're raising our kids? She said, oh, I don't do that, honey. I said, good, there won't be a problem. And then, and then I watched her for the next hour not be able to say a word because my mom communicated through judging and advising. That's mostly how she knew how to talk with people. And so now, I didn't, I, it wasn't welcome for me. It wasn't wanted. I didn't want it. It was problematic and net-net. Now, she didn't want me to say that. So you see the doubleness of it. I was tired. I, I wanted to tell her something she didn't want to hear that I was tired of her telling me stuff I didn't want to hear. But so be it. So I think that's that just. And I, li I like those, those six guidelines. Five mandatory, one optional. In a frame in which it's not about moralisms. And they're, ta they're, tra they're framed as so-called training precepts. I undertake the training precept to practice wise speech. Right? I undertake the training precept. So it's held in that way. We're going to mess up, but we keep going back to it. And those, those six, I think, are good, good guidelines for increasing the odds of remaining in this kind of equanimous place in our relationships with others. Okay? Yeah. Sure. And then we'll take a break I'm, in just a couple of minutes. I'm still troubled by the self problem here. Um, if, we're, if there is no self or if we're trying to lessen this egoistic drive, then who is doing all this right speech action? Is not doing is doing things in active doing terms right there. 
You people. So, okay, so it's great. It's deep. It's right. Okay, so again, uh, I thought a lot about this. And uh, I'm not saying I had the, the right answer. Okay, so a breakthrough for me was when Andy Olensky at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies said that um, there can still be the executive functions. There can still be, just because there is choosing, just because there is discerning, just because there is witnessing, doesn't necessarily mean there's an entity inside, the owner of experiences and the agent of actions. So there is agency. And I, I love how the Buddha just keeps bringing it down out of conceptualization, what he called the thicket of views, down to our direct experience. There is choosing, right? There is inclining in this way or inclining in that way. That is present. There is will that arose, right? There is inhibiting of something inappropriate or unskillful. But if you look closely, at that moment of inhibiting something unskillful, or that moment of choosing to turn right instead of left, when you look actually really closely at what happened there in your own mind and you kind of slow it down and do the instant replay with super slow-mo, what do you actually see in your own experience? And I think what I see and what people tell me they see is they see a lot of parts interacting with each other. They see a symphony without a conductor. There's a place for wholesome values. There's a place for intention. There's a place for that kind of standing wave of determination without presuming that there's an entity inside. That's, that's the idea. Yeah. Great. Okay, how about a little practice on the way out the door, I swear. Ready? We're going to do something really nice. It's going to feel really good. Okay? I hope. Um, All right. So, feeling strong. This, too, is a really important bulwark for equanimity. Because if you think about it, anxiety is rooted in a sense of a mismatch between threat and resources. Right? If you feel super resourced and... um, you know, someone's like, and you're, you're feeling really robust and strong in your immune system when someone coughs nearby, it doesn't bother you too much. But maybe you're immune compromised or you've just had three colds already this year and you're really run down and you know you're vulnerable and someone coughs nearby. It's that mismatch between threat and resource. So there are two ways to manage it. One is to bring down threat, both actually and our perception because as it says here, paper tigers, we tend to overestimate threats as an example of the negativity bias and underestimate resources. In the wild, you could make two kinds of mistakes, right? You could think there was a tiger in the bushes when there wasn't one. Or you could think where the coast was clear, you get the Beach Boys soundtrack in your mind, good vibrations, but there's really a tiger about to pounce. What's the cost of the first mistake? Needless anxiety. What's the cost of the second mistake? Yeah, no more mistakes forever. So Mother Nature wants us to make the first mistake a thousand times over to avoid making the second mistake once. So we're very vulnerable to threat level orange, to paper tiger paranoia, to overestimating threats. So we don't want to do that. So that's 
two ways to bring down threat, both substantively and perceptually. So we're more grounded in reality as it actually is. And it's to bring up resources, both actually and perceptually, to recognize the resources that we really have, as well as to shore up our resources. So right now, I want to explore with you an experience of feeling strong as an important way to be less disturbed by, you know, challenges and threats. Okay, so here we go. We'll follow the kind of structure I've done before of activation installation. So if you can, either notice some kind of strength in your being right now, maybe a sense of vitality in the body, perhaps a certain determination in your mind, or, and also create, add to this sense of strength, maybe by bringing up the body memory, the feeling in the body of a time when you were very strong, maybe outdoors, athletically, perhaps a time you stood up for somebody or stood up for yourself, or you just endured. Remember, enduring is a fundamental kind of strength surviving. You're still here. So I'll be quiet as you have, as you activate, some sense of strength. And then on your own, because you're getting better and better at this, enrich it and absorb it. You can strengthen the sense of strength by sitting up a little straighter, perhaps embodying it, not in a macho way, but what would be the enactment? What is if, how would your body naturally move or sit if you're really determined? What would be the expression in your face of determination? As the Buddha put it, that you're resolute. And see what it's like right here to make room for strength in you. Maybe there's some sense that there's a place inside that's felt weak that you could let a greater sense of strength move into. And then 
the last part of this. Imagine the next days, even years ahead of you, perhaps imagining particular challenges around the bend, and see if you can stay in touch with various aspects of the experience of strength that feel authentic to you as you imagine yourself dealing with these challenges and moving through these challenges rested in the sense of strength that enables you to stay in the responsive mode, to stay green, as it were, as you engage these challenges. While being buoyed and fueled and protected by a felt sense of strength. Notice that as you engage challenges, if you are rested in a sense of strength, you're less likely to get reactive about the challenges and more likely to recover more quickly if you do get reactive. there are some key experiences that I routinely uh, try to rest in or internalize. One of them is feeling all right, right now. That's very profound and powerful. Another is feeling cared about. Very important. Another is a lovingness toward others. And another experience that's very important for me is strength. Feeling strength including, like I said, to emphasize it, the strength of simply stand, of bearing, standing, enduring, getting through. It really counts. It may not make it into an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, <laughs> but it's a really important aspect of strength. So, okay, how about we take a break? If you don't mind, it'll be, come back please at uh, 10 minutes to 4. It'll be fairly quick. See you soon, 10 minutes.